welcome to Medium Cool, a movie podcast. I'm your host, Austin Glidden, and as always, you can find us on social media. That is Medium Cool Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Facebook.com backslash Medium Cool Pod. You can search Medium Cool Pod and we'll pop up on Instagram and at Medium Cool Pod on Twitter. You can also at Austin Glidden and find me on Twitter or search Austin Glidden on Letterboxd. Definitely go check out Letterboxd if you're a movie fan. And uh, hey, follow me. Let's be friends. I would love to hear your thoughts and see your thoughts written and all the things. It's a great time on there. You can also email us at mediumcoolpod at gmail.com. Please follow, subscribe, whatever, wherever you're listening to this. Help us out. You know, leave a rating, leave a review, all the fun stuff, all the obligatory, you know, shameless self-promotion. There you go. It's all done. Today is a really cool episode. Uh, if you remember when Medium Cool started, you know, we started kind of partnering up with the Film Yap for a long time, and then we eventually kind of went our own way. Not out of any kind of, you know, beef or anything. I mean, I've always had a really great relationship with uh, the Film Yap. It's just that's the direction we went. So, uh, you know, I never had an opportunity to talk to Christopher Lloyd, which is uh, the person who runs the Film Yap, not to be mistaken with the Back to the Future star. Uh, this Chris Lloyd lives in Indianapolis. He is the head of the Film Yap. He's been doing, well, I'll let him tell you how long he's been doing uh, film criticism. It's been a long time. And uh, I've actually never talked to this guy, ever. I mean, we've talked on email, of course, and we went back and forth a lot, but we've never actually had a conversation so I thought, man, I should invite him finally. We'll have a good conversation about film. We'll talk a little bit about the film yap, about his interests, and we'll celebrate the birthday of the great Robert De Niro, which actually is today. Uh, today is the day that he turns something like 78 or something. I, I need to actually uh, look at my notes, but um, let me see here. Yeah, 78 years old. Isn't that insane? So what a great guy. Uh, I, I love De Niro so much. Uh, like, I know him. I don't know him, but I'm just saying his work, you know. <laughs> I just really love his work, and he has some really fun interviews and stuff. He's a cool dude. Uh, and so uh, I let Christopher Lloyd choose one of the films we were going to watch, uh, just because he's my guest, you know. And then the other one, instead of just me choosing, like I used to do with Joe, I decided to let the listeners choose. So, uh, you know, he chose Midnight Run, the 1988 uh, Martin Brest film, and... Uh, uh, I was actually taken aback by that a bit, and he'll explain why he chose that here momentarily. And then uh, I went ahead and gave you guys three picks, all from different decades. The first being uh, The Deer Hunter, which is you know 1978, 1979. Technically, there was a premiere in 1978, and it, it was in like New York, things like that. But its wide release was in uh, early 1979, so we've kind of called it 1979 here. And uh, anyways, The Deer Hunter... Uh, the next one was The Mission from the 80s, and then Heat from, 19, I think, 95. Uh, and yeah, th these were the choices, and you guys chose The Deer Hunter. So that's exactly what we're going to be talking about today, Midnight Run and The Deer Hunter. But only after we hear a little bit about who Chris Lloyd is and how he got into film. Let's go ahead and get to that. Um, I'll talk a little bit more in the outro, but for now, let's see what Chris is doing. All right, everybody, I'm here with uh, Christopher Lloyd. No, not that Christopher Lloyd. This is the Christopher Lloyd from The Film Yap. I'm going to go ahead and let him introduce himself. Chris, tell everybody who you are. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm Christopher Lloyd, not related to the other guy. I, no sharing of talent or bank accounts, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, just uh, happened to be uh, born before he became a big star. My parents like the name. So, yeah, so I've been a film critic critic 
uh, if you, I guess if you include college for 30 years plus, and boy, is that a long time, um, did it kind of starting out the, uh, the traditional way, you know, in newspapers, worked in newspapers for a long time. Um, and then I've been kind of spreading my seed around in other ways for the last 12 or 13 years. So, you know, obviously, uh, filmyapp.substack.com is kind of our, our home base. Um, but uh, you can also see me on TV and I'm often on radio or doing podcasts with uh, fellow IFJers uh, like our friends here. Yeah. You know, I got to say this. You guys also have the actual Indiana Film Journalist Association, which is also a big deal, which if I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, you were one of the founders of this as well, along with others. Is that right? Yeah, the original six going back to 2009, um, really it was something that was cooked up by myself and the uh, late, great Edward Johnson Ott of Nouveau News Weekly. Um, he and the Indie Star critic, Bonnie Britton, had uh, attempted to create a state critics group years and years and years ago. And basically it never really got off the ground because it just wasn't really a critical community there. Um, and so 2008, 2009, uh, both uh, Joe Shearer and I um, uh, exited the Indie Star umbrella uh, as, as things go with the media universe there, as, as I think we all are quite familiar with. And so, you know, uh, Ed and I had become uh, good friends by that point, And he, you know, encouraged me to keep reviewing in whatever capacity I had. So I started my own blog and then blog, uh, Joe came along and said, let's do something together, which ended up becoming the film app, and then I segued into television and so on. And Ed was the one who came to me and said, let's let's restart that idea of doing a critics group. Really, you know, it was a combination of selfish and altruistic purposes. Uh, the, the selfish part was, so 2008, 2009, the screening situation here in Indianapolis had just gotten down to the absolute pits, where most of the major studios were not screening their films here for us, for critics at all. There was no online screener capability back then. So it was really getting pretty, pretty, pretty bad. So we wanted to start a group to kind of advocate for ourselves saying, hey, we're here. We can give you coverage to our films, uh, but we need to see them. And uh, over time, that uh, really helped. Um, the second reason was to start giving out awards. Uh, just because, A, that's really fun, but also it's a great way to draw attention to the group, to the critical community in Indiana, um, and let people know that it is here. And finally, and I think what, what's ended up becoming the most important reason, was to really foster that critical community, to invite in new critics, younger critics. Um, you know, we've tried to bring in critics uh, who are women or people of color with mixed success. Um, but it's, it's still an ongoing goal. Um, so I think, you know, at this point we started out with just six members, nobody knew who we were. I remember the first year we gave out our awards in late 2009. Uh, I don't think we could get any media outlets to run it or say anything about it. The, the, the studios barely paid attention to us. Um, and so here we are, uh, 12, 13 years later going on. I think we're up to 22 or 23 critics now in the group. Um, we actually lost one with Ed's passing, unfortunately, earlier this year. Um, and the studios vie for our attention. Um, and I think we've done a great job of trying to foster that next generation of critics because, you know, frankly, uh, now that original six, you know, we've, we've had one of them pass away. 
Um, a lot of them are getting older uh, in our 40s, 50s, and 60s and 70s, some of them. Um, and so we really want to bring in that next generation of critics uh, to really lead the way for the future. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love that you also brought in people with what I would consider pretty diverse ideas. You know, Sam Watermeyer, who's been on here, is different than Evan Dossie, who's different than Joe Shear, who's different than you. You know what I mean? So you do kind of get this this kind of wide idea base. And I really do appreciate that. Another thing, too, is uh, in 2014 and 15, I wrote for the film, yeah. And uh, when I was in grad school and I was looking for more outlets to just kind of do fun writing, because when you're in grad school, especially if you're studying film, you're uh, pretty much doing only academic work. You know, you're reading these really dense papers and you're writing these things. And I love that work. I actually really like thinking that hard and overthinking things. But it was really fun to kind of have these outlets just to have fun with. And I appreciate you helping me because I used to email with you. People don't understand this. This is the first conversation you and I have ever had like this, like in person. Yeah. Yeah. Like in this is the first time. We have talked voice to voice, uh, but we've had many, many via email, of course. Um, but uh, yeah, so I appreciate you being here and I appreciate what the film yaps done and uh, what other kind of outlets have done here. Um, and you guys are, I just, I wish you the most success. Sounds like I'm signing off, but instead <laughs> I'm actually leading into something else. You know, we're, we're talking about uh, film here, film journalism. We've heard kind of, where you came from with the journalism over the last 30 years, but before we hop into Midnight Run, uh, what got you into film in general? Well, I mean, I was a nerdy little kid, like pretty much I think every film critic. I, I, you know, if you were like a, a, a strapping kid who had a well-adjusted childhood and were big in sports and were really popular, uh, I mean, I, I don't think any anybody ends up in film criticism with that sort of upbringing. It certainly was not mine. <laughs> I always loved movies, always crazy about them. I remember when I was a you know small kid convincing my, my dad to take me to R-rated movies, uh, having him squirm in the seat next with me. I remember like going to see Excalibur when I was like 11 years old. Nice. Uh, and like, you know, within the first five minutes, there's like, you know, a nude sex scene. Uh, and my dad was not too uh, comfortable. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I continue, ended up continuing to love it. And then I was, a, 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 you know, I read a lot. I read a lot of mythology and, and comic books and all that kind of stuff. You know, what we would now call geek culture. But back then they just called being lame. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, I also became interested in film criticism. I was that weird kid when he was, you know, 10, 11, 12 years old. that I was reading my film critic at my hometown newspaper, which was the Orlando Sentinel. Um, uh, uh, and a couple of different guys from back then uh, that I remember reading. I remember being incensed when he only gave Return of the Jedi uh, four out of five stars. How dare he? Um, and I watched Siskel and Ebert, um, you know, when they, when their show really in the early eighties, when it was, when it really went national became a big thing. I watched it religiously in my I can even remember in my uh, my time zone, it came on at like a one thirty on Sunday afternoon and I watched it every week or uh, recorded it with my VHS uh, recorder. Um, and so, yeah, I was really interested in film criticism at a, at a young age, followed it voraciously, never thought about it as a career just because it's not like any other career where 
you, you know, you want to be a lawyer, you want to be a doctor, you want to be a nurse, you want to be a teacher, whatever, there's pretty much a set path for you to follow. Like, this is what you want to do to become that. You want to be, be in construction, you want to uh, go in this way, ha have an internship in this particular thing, or an apprenticeship in this, you know, and that. There's no formula to become a film critic. And really, up until that time, you know, almost no film critics um, had any kind of a formal training in film or filmmaking, or there weren't even any programs about watching movies or studying movies from a theoretical or critical perspective back in the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the great ones like Roger Ebert or Pauline Kael or some of those others, I mean, were just basically people like me who became interested in it and just fell into it. And it really became a self-taught thing. So when I went off to um, college, uh, uh, not really knowing what I wanted to do, I was a psychology major for my first two years, and I hated it. Uh, I probably should have had a, had a clue because my, my grade point average in my major was lower than all my other electives. Um, and I finally, after my freshman year, going into my sophomore year, I had this idea, well, let me try and pursue a, a film criticism career. And so back then, this is, again, 30 years ago, what that meant was going into sort of traditional journalism uh, model um, and trying to do it that way. So I did kind of a, a backward thing is so I ended up going to uh, after I transferred around colleges several times. Um, I actually attend, attended five different colleges, including undergrad and grad. So I ended up going to New York University. Um, New York University has a cinema studies program, which is much, much, much smaller than their film studies program. Film studies program is, you know, Spike Lee and all those people. It's uh, learning to become a filmmaker. When I was there, it occupied three out of the 12 floors of the Tisch School of the Arts, plus the basement where they had all the film equipment. Um, just massive. I can't even remember. I want to say it was about over a thousand students in it. Um, the cinema studies department is we had one half of one floor. I think we had 85 students in the program, you know, maybe about five, five or six full-time professors and probably the same number of adjunct professors. Uh, and we watched movies for an education instead of, uh, instead of making them, which I can tell you is infinitely more fun. Oh yeah. Uh, so then I ended up, um, uh, kind of starting my career writing for a little community newspaper, um, well, in my hometown, I just went to them and said, Hey, um, I'm saving up money for grad school. I'm, I'm working over here in this movie theater as assistant manager. Uh, would you like me to write some stuff for you for free? And I said, sure. Um, so that was great. Um, and ended up uh, going to Northwestern university at the Medill school of journalism. So I got my master's in journalism from there. And from there, just kind of followed that traditional uh, journalism path, you know, you just become like that cub reporter covering like school board meetings and sort of stuff. Yeah. And I did, you know, you go up to a bigger paper, then you go to a bigger paper. And I always, always was writing film criticism for my, my papers. I would just go to whoever was the features editor and just say, I'll write some movie reviews for free. And, uh, I was up in the kind of the, uh, uh, area of Florida around like Ocala Gainesville, no movie screenings happened there. So I would drive down to Orlando or occasionally to Tampa or even up to Jacksonville for screenings, you know, three and a half hour round trip each way. Um, and I did that for 10 years, um, moving up into different papers, eventually became the enter entertainment editor of my 
uh, paper there. Ended up getting a job here in Indianapolis as entertainment editor of the Indianapolis Star, uh, and just kind of gone gone that way until you know the traditional media pathway sort of fell out uh, underneath all of us, uh, and you knew things were going bad for film criticism because film critics were kind of the canaries in the coal mine. They were the first to go when things started to get really bad in 2007, 2008. Sure. Like almost the first thing every newspaper did was, was can their film critic, you know? So it's, it's a, it's a weird thing to do because people talk about like becoming a player in the NBA. It's so hard because there's only about 400 jobs, 400, 400, 500 jobs in all of the NBA. And so the competition for those slots is huge. Well, film criticism for many years basically meant having a job in a newspaper or the very, very, very few television stations or radio stations that had a full-time film critic. And you were talking at, at the peak, maybe, maybe like 100, 125 people were making their living as film critics. So it's a really tough, tough racket to get into as a vocation. Yeah. So now, you know, it's interesting what's happened to film criticism over the last decade is, you know, there's probably even less people actually making their living from film criticism, but there's a lot of people like us who kind of do it as a side gig. Maybe they make a a little bit of money from it. Maybe they make a, a, a... you know, side income from it or whatever, or they just do it for fun and their own edification. Um, So it's kind of gone from having this very, very small group of film critics in the country to it's a much, much larger thing. There's literally thousands of film critics across the country doing podcasts, doing websites, some still doing it traditionally in print or other ways. So it's different. It's some ways scary, but it's also in a lot of ways really exciting. I think both as someone who's doing it and I hope as someone who's consuming it, because there's obviously about, they have a lot more choices, a lot of viewpoints to pick from. Um, and like you say, you know, looking at the IFJA or just the critical community in um, Indiana, whether you want to get into some people who are like really kind of snarky and just want to have fun with it and make jokes and kind of do that kind of, you know, I don't like the term, but fanboy kind of thing. And that's fine. You know, there's people out there that do it. There's kind of like old schoolers like me and Bob Bloom. Um, some of the others, you know, who've been doing it for years and years. We still kind of hold true to the written review as our main viewpoint. But, you know, even I, I mean, I'm, I'm on podcasts. Um, I do my own uh, occasional podcasts uh, at the Film app. Um, I'm on television. I have the website and I actually still have some newspaper clients who occasionally, not often, but occasionally run my stuff. So it's really interesting, the evolution that it's, it's taken. Um, it's not a great gig to get into if you really think you're going to make your living from it. Cause you're probably not. <laughs> yeah. But, um, if you really are passionate about film, um, uh, it's something that really I can't live without. I mean, I can't imagine myself ever, ever not doing it. I mean, like Bob Bloom, you know, he was at uh, the Lafayette newspaper and he retired a few years ago, a few years ago, but he's still doing film criticism, his own website. He contributes to the film app and does his own thing. It's really kind of just seeped into our blood at this point. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny your story hearing that you were always like this film fan, you know what I mean? Like this this guy who just loved movies. And it's funny cuz, you know, growing up I liked movies, but I was I was your average Joe. I just watched them for entertainment. This movie sucks cuz I don't like the people in it. And it wasn't until um, you know, 2003 or so where I saw the film Amelie, having never seen anything international or like it. And, you know, my favorite movies being Michael Bay's The Rock and, you know, the Fairley Brothers Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> you know, like this was no I mean, hey, people can like those. I'm just saying that that was the extent of my movie consumption. You know what I mean? And then seeing Amelie in two, uh, 2003 blew my mind because, again, going from think of something like The Rock or Dumb and Dumber, those can be really fun. But Amelie is very different than us. Like, you know, I mean, just a very, very different experience. And I had, I had that one friend, which you were probably this friend to other people, Chris. Uh, I had this friend who was like, oh, you like Amelie? Dude, you should check out the French New Wave or like, you should check out this or that, you know? And he would always give me this stuff. And I went from the rock and dumb and dumber to Amelie to the French New Wave in the 50s and 60s, you know? And then I jumped to Kurosawa in Japan and I was like out of the US. I was like, American movies suck. Because whenever you first get in the movies, a lot of times you get really extreme, right? And it's just like, screw yeah. that. And then I saw Pulp Fiction. And that brought me back to the... I was like, whoa, we make cool movies, you know? And I started off as that kind of fanboy type guy, you know? But then as I just started reading books and I started, you know, really digging in and trying to understand what directors do and what producers do and what writers do and all these aspects of the film and how they can come together harmoniously to make something like The Godfather or Jaws or any new, just numerous, numerous films. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, I just learned that there was so much more to it. And I actually went to Ball State originally to do film production. And then I realized, one, I don't want to move to California, <laughs> which is a big thing most people do. You don't have to, but you're going to struggle a lot more if you don't. Um, and then uh, I realized, too, most of the production guys at Ball State don't know anything about film. But I want to be the film and media studies guy. And if I want to make movies, I'll get in touch with these guys. They can bring the equipment. But I want to understand movies. And, man, that like I'll never regret going to school for it because though I'm not using my film and media studies degree like at all <laughs> other than in my hobbies, you know, um, but it it changed the way I think about most things. You know what I mean? And, and uh, like you said, man, movies, I just can't imagine living without them. You know what I mean? Like what like just the things I've learned and the extent to which I put my heart into the watching of movies. You know what I mean? Like I actually try to internalize and like learn things or just let them wash over me and have fun. You know what I mean? Like some movies are just, you know, you can just have fun with and that's fine. But yeah, man, I I'm with you. Like I mean, what would we do without movies? Who knows? Yeah. I love I, one of my favorite things is exploring classic film. Um, and even though I've seen a lot of them at this point in my life, you know, what I say to people is there's so many movies in the past, um, depending on, you know, when you were born, um, the, there's even more of a treasure trove. And that's how I see it for you to explore. And it's like there are so many old movies out there that like you could watch one of those every day for the rest of your life and you would still never even see a small portion of all of the history of film i mean that's just how much there is so yes. like, that's one of the things i i continue to do is i do something that i've literally been doing since the first day of my blog and and the film yap is a, a a thing called reeling backward which is where i look at a film 
generally a classic film, although I've done I've done as 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 most recent vintage is like 2010. But, you know, a movie that's at least 10 years old, um, but usually mo- they're more like movies from the 60s, 70s, 40s, 50s, 30s. I've even done a few silent films from the 20s or teens, the old, the previous teens. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really get to see that now. The, the, the last teens. And I do that uh, every other week. And I really do that just for my own film education and enjoyment just so that no matter what's happening, because I mean, I, you know, as I'm sure you and a lot of the other people uh, who are in the critical community, you know, I'm seeing three to four new movies every week. And it's, 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 it can be tough to keep up with, especially with having a full-time job and kids and life and all that other stuff. Absolutely. I commit to doing the reeling backward column just so that I know I am experiencing a couple dozen new classic films new to me every year and i've that's one of the things i really enjoyed i actually uh rounded it up into book form uh years ago uh and i haven't done it since just because print is kind of you know some hey buy my thing in print is kind of a something not something you kind of convince people to do nowadays (laughs) yeah absolutely dude i i actually didn't know this i knew about the reeling backwards thing but I didn't know that was something that you actively did. I appreciate that because that's something that, um, you know, when I studied film, both in in undergrad and grad, when I was doing the film stuff, because I did a digital storytelling program, but I was still interested in film history, looking at history, what was happening then, but also how this film was influenced by those things or influenced those things. But then also I love the idea of the retro kind of mentality as well, looking at these old films now also. And that was always kind of, even when I was writing for the film app, I did a column with you guys called uh, Cinema Blind Spots, which was these kind of classic films, whether it be critically classic or pop culture or whatever, uh, you know, these really popular movies like The Wild Bunch I had never seen at the time. And that was just, that's just kind of one of those staples from 68 and, or 69, whichever it was. But anyways, like, uh, I remember watching that and just, you know, kind of fulfilling what I just said, looking at the history, what was happening in cinema at the time, what was happening with the production code, which had just ended, you know, all of those things. But then also looking at it now, does it hold up to maybe newer viewers that haven't went back to watch that? What can I offer them and encourage them? Because one thing I do also is, uh, is I never want to tell someone just don't watch something. I mean, it has to be so bad for me to even get close to that. My big thing is like, Hey, if you want to go, if it seems interesting to you, go check it out. Have your own opinion. But this is definitely mine, and I hate this movie or whatever, you know. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's always been a big thing, and I love helping people broaden their horizons and learn yeah. more. Like uh, with a lot of my friends, I would have checklists on my fridge, you know, when I lived in Muncie, and uh, for each person, and we would watch movies, and all of them were what I considered gateway movies. So it was like oh. just below the surface, but maybe with actors you'll know or or something that's more fast-paced that they'll kind of appreciate. And then once we completed that, I'd make another list that's just a little more below the surface, and then just a little more, you know, uh, things like that. And it was always fun to watch their whole views change so that when they go watch Transformers, they're seeing so much more of the movie. Doesn't mean they don't like it, but it's like, whoa, dude, like the writing's bad, even though the special effects rules, you know, like or whatever the thing is, it was so cool to watch them kind of like evolve. And that's that's kind of always been important to me and that's a big thing with this podcast is I I try to hit everything from you know Star Wars you know pop movies to 
you know, uh, Bergman art. Like I'm doing something with Matthew Sosi right now with Ingmar Bergman, you know, and we're running through his stuff. And I would love to start digging into silent stuff. I, I have so many interests in films. It's hard for me to stick to one thing. Like I always just want to jump around and um, things like columns or the podcast and stuff kind of help focus me. Um, but we're rambling now. I just love this. I'm so happy you're here. I want to go ahead, though, if you don't mind. I want to jump over to uh, Robert De Niro. Uh, De Niro's birthday is on August 17th, all right, which is actually today, the day that this drops, uh, is Robert De Niro's birthday. He'll be 78 years old, or he is uh, as of the drop of this episode. And uh, we, we, we had two things in mind. Chris, we had, uh, I let you choose one as my guest, just choose any random De Niro movie, whatever you wanted to talk about, we dig into. And then the other thing, instead of me picking one, uh, which we've done in the past, I just let the listeners choose. And the choices, uh, Chris, yours was Midnight Run from 1988. And the listeners between the three choices I gave them, which was The Deer Hunter, The Mission, and Heat, and The Deer Hunter won. A little surprised. I actually thought Heat might win. But the Deer Hunter yeah. won, so you know I, I'm okay with that, but we'll get there. Uh, but I want to start with Midnight Run here. So it came out in 1988, directed by Martin Brest, who also did you know Scent of a Woman, Beverly Hills Cop, and Meet Joe Black, as well as other films. It was written by George Gallo. Uh, the cast is so good. Just to give you some history on Midnight Run for me, um, I had never seen this, and I actually didn't know anything about the director, really. I mean, I knew Martin Brest. I, I knew, like, I've heard that name, but he's not a guy I've ever really dug into. You know what I mean? And I knew about the film, but I actually didn't know anything much other than a bounty hunter taking, like, his his catch, basically, you know, uh, back to a place. That's really all I knew. I didn't even know the cast. So this was, like, a blind spot to me. This would have been a cinema blind spot if I were still doing that, that thing. So uh, the cast actually blew my mind. Of course, Robert didn't... <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me, guys. Of course, Robert De Niro's in it. Charles Grodin. Those are the two big ones. Uh, Yefat Kodo. Uh, George Paneliano with hair. This guy. Holy shit. He's awesome. Um, and then we have uh, Dennis Farina uh, and Philip Baker Hall and John Ashton. It was released July 20th, 1988 with a budget of $35 million. Box office, $81.6 million. So this was a success. Uh, and accolades, it got some Golden Globe nominations, Best Motion Picture f uh, from a Comedy or Musical, and Best Performance by an Actor. That was for De Niro. This was uh, for the Golden Globes. They did not win, but they were nominated. And the film, you know, is uh, basically about Charles Grodin, who plays uh, Jonathan Mardukas, an accountant who embezzled $15 million of the Chicago mob's money, jumped bail, and is chased by bounty hunters, the FBI, and the Mafia. The most notable bounty hunter is Jack Walsh, played by De Niro, who finds Grodin almost immediately, despite the FBI and the mafia searching for him with no luck. But, uh, you know, it sets the premise of the film up, though. A buddy cop road movie where the two men are not cops, but they still kind of fulfill these subgenre tropes, uh, and they, they stand pretty well. We, we watch all of the antics between the odd couple, Mardukas and Walsh, and how easily the FBI and mob could be considered bumbling ignoramuses. Uh, it's a comedy about this contentious relationship, different ideas of right and wrong, opposites attracting, and an exercise in one's true self being below the surface, and uh, basically how to break down the barriers to find more of one's humanity. Now, this was your choice, Chris. What made you choose 
Midnight Run out of all of the De Niro movies that you could choose. Why this one? Well, I did I did want to choose something maybe not choosing one of the big Oscar Beatty um, film that he was nominated for an Oscar or won an Oscar drama type of thing. Just because, uh, you know, up until 1988, that's really what he had done. I mean, exclusively. I yeah. mean, you can point to a few things that were comedic before that. I guess uh, I'm trying to remember the exact year of We're No Angels. But, of course, that was a complete flop that nobody saw. Um, and this was kind of a real break point for De Niro where he did something that was mainstream and funny and accessible and I don't think audiences or critics had really seen anything like that from him before. He's always thought of this very, very serious character actor, you know, working with Scorsese a lot and things like that. Um, and here he was in this, you know, fairly broad piece of pop entertainment. And I, I, I am not being dismissive when I say that. It is a piece of pop entertainment, but uh, I choose it because I think it's a fantastic film. I think it's um, supreme entertainment. It's like... If you're going to do a popcorn entertaining film, this is about as good as you can do it. There's no fat in this movie. Everything just moves along. And yet we actually do really care about these characters, particularly uh, the Duke and Jack Walsh. We really get emotionally invested in them. And so there are some moments there where you've got a couple of spectacular actors who actually really do get to show their stuff in the midst of this sort of uh, popcorn, you know, shoot 'em up comedy with, you know, helicopters sh chasing people with machine guns that somehow they can shoot 800 bullets and only four of them hit the car and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. Um, and and it was a break point for De Niro because he it was so the film was so successful critically and commercially that he suddenly started doing a lot more of these to the point where really. Um, there was a period there where, you know, it, it, you know, it became this thing where De Niro was like almost doing a spoof on himself, on his star persona as this really gritty, serious actor. And he would do a lot of these things like, you know, uh, meet the Fockers and things like that, where he was playing off that persona. Yeah. But for laughs, um, I think it got a little tiresome after a while. Um, I, I think maybe about 10, 15 years ago. And he's kind of wandered back a little bit more to the serious stuff like The Irishman since then. But it was, that was a really ev interesting evolution for him as an actor. Because, you know, when you're assessing an actor or actress's legacy, you know, uh, you know, a great, great someone like that. Like, obviously, one of the all-time great acting careers. You know, like him, Meryl Streep, you know, of, of, the, of that generation. You know, there's a lot of different things. It's not just about talent. Um, it's also about the roles that they choose, why they choose them, you know, the reason they chose them, uh, what motivated them and how it impacted their career going forward. And I think uh, Midnight Run was, you know, one movie you can really point to, not just because it's a great movie. And I mean that it's a greatly entertaining movie, fantastically well-made, well-acted, well-written, well-everything. Um that you could just point to and say, here was an actor making what was then a really bold choice that uh, cha changed the course of his career in a lot of ways. No, I I, I agree. You know, I, I, I don't think I'm as big on this movie as you, but I was definitely uh, positive. And I was actually surprised. I had pretty, not low expectations. I kind of have no expectations, again, because I didn't really know 
kind of what I was getting into, other than I knew some guy embezzled money. I knew that there was a bounty hunter after him. Um, but I, I didn't really look much into it. I was kind of excited to dig into this thing after you mentioned it without knowing much. And I'm actually really glad I did. I was surprised, though. Um, you know, I use, uh, you know, kind of platforms like Letterboxd and things like that. Dude, this movie gets so much love on Letterboxd. I'm not going to lie. If you look if you look at all of the, the uh, like, ratings and different things, I mean, it has an overwhelmingly positive one, but all of the kind of bigger critics and stuff that I follow, I mean, this is, like, between four and five star, like, greatness. And that actually, after I watched the movie, that actually forced me to kind of reprocess this movie because I, I didn't quite get that. When I was watching it, you know what I mean. I, you're right, man. They they trim the fat here for sure. This is like everything moves very quickly, but not in like a it's way too fast paced. But it's more of like you know it just things move uh, move along very quickly. And you know what it reminded me of as I was watching it. Not that these movies are really all that much alike, but I I, I remember outward like saying out loud to myself, "This is the Smokey and the Bandit of the De Niro movies." <laughs> Because I just kept thinking, like, how silly those FBI sequences are. You know, there's actually a scene where where the uh, the mobster, the, the mob boss, sends his goons to assassinate uh, the Duke here, Mardukas, uh, played by Charles Grodin. And uh, they're getting off this bus or something. And he, he, this mob guy has all his goons, like, on houses or, like, these buildings and you know, in cars around the area, and the FBI just swarms all these cop cars, and then there's just a shootout between mobsters and cops, <laughs> and they're just, like, shooting at each other. No one hits him, of course, because, as you said, people can just unload clips and, like, nothing hits them, which is fine. Uh, you know, again, I don't care, but uh, but it is, it's like, it, those moments reminded me, as well as some of the car chase moments, I just kept thinking of smoking the Bandit. Uh, but the other thing I thought of, especially with the music and stuff, is it kept reminding me of Beverly Hills Cop. And I, yeah. as I was watching it, did not know this was by the same person. So I'm just like, man, this reminds me of Beverly Hills Cop. This is weird. And then, of course, you know, I was not surprised whenever I found out that uh, Martin Brest had made Beverly Hills Cop. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if you're listeners, if you're into that type of comedy and stuff, this is definitely down your alley. I, I agree with with Chris there. Um I like to start often with the performances, so I'm going to dig into a few of these. I just want to say that, uh, what's his name? Dennis Farina? Yeah, okay, I always forget his first name, but Dennis Farina's the best, okay? <laughs> like, as a mob boss guy, like, what a great dude. I love his look. I love his, uh, he just has something about the cadence in which he speaks, or there's just some sort of, like, bravura that comes out of him that just makes you fear him even though he doesn't look like a brute that could hurt you he looks like he has the authority to sick a brute on you that will hurt you badly and I there's just something about Farina that I love and I want to talk about a couple other people I'll toss it to you Joe Paneliano who's also a side character I've always loved this guy and my god is he so good in this as well I love he plays uh, Eddie who is this guy that runs this bail bonds place? And he put up like four hundred fifty thousand dollars on the Duke, and the Duke fled. So he's basically going to go out of business if uh, De Niro's uh, Walsh doesn't find him. So uh, the whole point is the whole movie is about Walsh trying to get him back to L.A. from New York. Uh, 
And so uh, Joe Paneliano, every time he gets these calls from all these different people that he's trying to keep tabs on, he's just progressively more and more getting more unhinged and becoming the Pantoliano that we know. And I just love him. But the one that really struck me, because I'm such a fan of another movie that I think draws direct comparisons, is Philip Baker Hall. I've been a huge fan of Philip Baker Hall. Even when he was doing random one-man shows like Secret Honor in the 80s, I love this guy. And his character is Sidney, and he plays this hitman for the mob boss, and he's kind of like a guy that, uh, you know, kind of tries to give the mob boss advice and say, I wouldn't do that, but he still listens to the boss. He is essentially a precursor to Paul Thomas Anderson's first feature, which was Heart Eight, where he plays Sidney. And it's not technically the same character. I mean, if you if you look at the the movies, it's not. But they work perfectly. To, I mean, this could be a double feature. The movies could not be more different. But I mean, Philip Baker Hall plays the same character, wears the same suits. He plays a former kind of hitman and mob guy. You know, like uh, all these things. The movie was actually originally meant to be called Sydney, but the uh, investors and stuff did not want that. So it was Hard Eight. And uh, I love Philip Baker Hall, and I love him in Hard Eight. So I'll tell you this: that alone one points for me on this because I'm so hyped for that comparison. I'll get into uh, De Niro and Grodin here in a moment. You're welcome to. But as far as performance, what stood out to you? What were some things that you thought were, you know, that really connected with you, I guess? Again, you can talk about the leads as well. Yeah, um, it's funny. You know, the film was very popular. It came out and then, you know, when home video in the 90s and DVDs were coming on, it was it was very, very big, talked about a lot. People tend to, you know, remember it for the humor, um, like the whole, like Agent Foster Grant. I mean, I can tell you uh, as a young person back then, I mean, that was like a running joke with, with, with a lot of people in pop culture, referring to the sunglasses and Agent yeah. Foster Grant, Yafit Kodo, so great as the, the, the stern, stern FBI agent who keeps kind of getting his face rubbed in it, but still is able to see the humor in it. Yeah, Dennis Frieda, the actor I love, um, interesting guy. He was a real Chicago detective, police detective, um, who retired and then took up acting pretty late in life. Um, and uh, th- that was actually uh, Midnight Run was actually I think one of his first really big film roles. He was in a TV show that I love that only ran for two seasons around that time called Crime Story. Uh, yeah. It was a Michael Mann executive produced thing. It was really cool. Um, interesting. Um, uh, uh, a number of the actors who were in that film have died fairly recently. Um, uh, uh, Charles Grodin, Yafit Kodo, and Dennis Farina have all passed away just within the last year, I think. So kind of sad to see them go. Um, John Ashton is Marvin Dorfler. They're sort of, you know, idiot competition, bounty hunter. Always a lot of fun, you know, kind of playing the similar role um, that he had in uh, Beverly Hills Cop. Um, uh, playing kind of playing the straight man who kind of keeps getting his pie in his face. It's just so funny rewatching the film, and I, and I admit I probably had not seen it in a good twelve, maybe even fifteen years. I was really struck by Charles Grodin in this, just because you know you do kind of have the thing of uh, De Niro's playing the straight man, Grodin is is sort of the guy who's constantly needling him, getting under his skin, you know, setting up the comedy moments. But really, you know, watching the film almost from the moment that Walsh captures the Duke, the Duke is working him. Um, and he's, and he's not just trying to work him like to get free of him and have him convince him to let him go or give him the slip. 
he's like seems generally interested in Jack and is like giving him therapy. And like, I mean, really, a lot of those conversations were like in a car or in a train or in the back of a pickup truck. Their their dialogue, it's it's like a therapy session where where the Duke is, you know, trying to help him, you know, talk to him about his kids, talk about his marriage. Why is this bothering so much? Why you have an ulcer? What happened to you in Chicago? Why did you leave Chicago? And, you know, there's like this twin line of like he's trying to he is trying to needle him. And a lot of the comedy eruptions come from that. Um, but I was just struck by how like kind and gentle his character is, is that, you know, if, he, if the story in the movie is that he stole $15 million from the Las Vegas mob and gave it to charity um, and now is on the run because they want to kill him and the feds want him so he can testify against the mob and so forth. Um, and, you know, he really seems not interested in money. Um, and, you know, he's like, well, I was working for a firm and I found out that we were a front for the mob and I had to do something. So he's he really is this white knight character in retrospect. I mean, I think when people first saw him in the movie, he was doing kind of that Charles Grodin, that thing, that very laconic uh, straight or, 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 you know, thing where he was, you know, trying to needle people and get on your nerves and that kind of stuff. And rewatching it now, I was really struck. Maybe it's just because I'm sentimental because he did pass away just a few months ago how humanistic and just good his character is and and how I didn't ever really see that before. And I mean, the whole journey of these two guys is, you know, Jack Walsh is a fallen knight and he was a do-gooder who things, you know, he, he was uh, defeated uh, in, in his good deeds, lost his job, lost his wife, lost his family, lost his standing. Um, And, the Duke's role in this is, you know, he's just out there helping people. He's giving it to the mob. He's giving millions of dollars to charity. He's helping Jack on this redemptive journey uh, as they go along. And again, all this is, is mixed into the pie of what is just a big, sweet, tasty, entertaining popcorn movie. And so I'm just continually astounded that they, that they managed to get all those ingredients into this movie. I, I, you know, their relationship is so interesting because though, and I, I'll ask you about this in a second, though, I think so many of the plot points are so convenient. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I would say to a fault, but it doesn't ruin the movie. Like, like, uh, watching it, like the big, the big uh, plot hole in the movie is that a bounty hunter, once you capture your guy, he can just take him to any law enforcement officer anywhere and turn him in, and they would make sure that he gets back to whatever jurisdiction he needs to get back to, and his job is over. So the whole idea that they need to go on a cross-country journey is BS from the start. <laughs> but, you know, you swallow it, and you move on. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll say this, you know, like I said, because I'm, I'm positive on the movie overall. Um, but it, it didn't... Those moments definitely, like pulled me up a little bit, you know what I mean? I, I refuse to use the term pulled me out so much because I kind of expected it to be what it is uh, to some extent, uh, but it, it was really like, despite these convenient plot points, despite some of them that really don't make any sense to me either, like, how could, I don't, I just, it's just a harder pill for me to swallow that, Deni- like, Grodin's uh, uh, Mardukas would get Walsh to actually go see his ex-wife and daughter. 
You know, <laughs> like, like, cause it kind of happens so easily. Like they kind of talk about it and then it just cuts to a scene where they're literally just at the front door. Now I understand that they needed money and you know, like I, I, they make it work enough where it doesn't sting. Right. Like you, you can just, like you said, you can just let it go and just keep going. But despite all of that, the thing getting back to your point though, is uh, I, I really did appreciate their relationship despite some of the development that I wish maybe would have been there more. And maybe that's just my fault in having higher expectations. I don't really know how to talk about it, but I like how their relationship unfolds because it starts very contentious. Of course, they're very opposite. It's very much an odd couple situation. And then, you know, as things go, like you said, it becomes this therapy appointment. You learn, we, the audience learn with Grodin and De Niro's characters about each of these characters, right? So, um, you know, uh, uh, Mardukas is telling uh, Walsh different parts of his past and why he did things. He doesn't up front, but eventually starts talking about, I gave all the money to charity, or I did this, or I did this. We learn these have really critical moments, you know, where, you know, things kind of slow down. They might be sitting in a diner waiting to figure out what they're going to do or or however it plays out, but we're learning these kind of critical moments in the story. And the same thing goes with... Um, Despite not really giving narrative wise, not really caring for the moment where they go to the ex-wife's house, that scene, though, exclusively out of context, just that scene is a really kind of critical moment for Walsh as well, that character, because that's the moment where he's not just this hardened bounty hunter. He now has a past. And now we're going to start learning a lot more about his involvement with that, you know, Chicago mob or whatever. And you know what I mean? Um and so, uh, and you mentioned Las Vegas, which I know a lot of the mob went there, but they, just so I have my facts straight here, they were all from Chicago originally, correct? From originally, yeah. Okay. So the, the, Jack was in Chicago and uh, Serrano, the character played by Dennis uh, Farina. Uh, Farina, were in Chicago. And then For, uh, Farina's character moved to Las Vegas as now like the king of Las Vegas. Yes, yes. That, so that, 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 go ahead. Not, not a lot of the actual movie is take. Like the scenes where we see him, where we see the Serrano character talking and, you know, wearing his suits and all that kind of stuff, that's in Vegas, although not it's not terribly Vegas-y back, backdrop. Yeah, I will say this about Vegas, though, while, we, while we're on the topic. When they're going through Vegas and when they're moving in Vegas, I never realized until watching this movie how much I love 80s and 90s movies in Vegas. I just love that because now it's so flashy. But it's like way more stripped down in comparison to now. And I just love the bright lights with just the dark grimness that like film somehow captures in that city. Going back to Hard Eight as well. Like I love the way that film looks. Same thing with this. Like just being in Las Vegas and them just being in that environment. Uh, I really, really like that about the movie. Again, like you said, they're not in Vegas, but a, a small percentage of the movie. Uh, but uh, it is it is pretty good. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I thought that I, I really appreciated the Mardukas Walsh relationship. It doesn't matter if I buy it cause I don't really buy their relationship, but there are moments in it. Like I said, there are almost exclusive scenes that I really found either moving or like really interesting, like just whatever they're talking about, especially the ones where it could be something as trivial as Mardukas saying like, 
you know, why do you eat that? And he's just eating like fried chicken. <laughs> like, why do you eat that? Or like, you're not smoking on this bus. What are you doing? He's just really, you know, digging at him to stop smoking. And they get into these arguments. But what I kind of alluded to earlier, this I, these different ideas of rights, like right and wrong, and these ideas of there being a human underneath this kind of facade that they're putting on to one another. Uh, I really love how those things unfold. Did you have any direct feelings about how kind of the narrative unfolds, or is that something that you kind of put on the back burner and let the movie wash over you because it is so entertaining and fun? I think um, uh, I paid more attention to the narrative, you know, when it first came out and during the first, you know, decade or so where it lived inside my mind, just because, like I said, it's just such a well-constructed plot, just, you know, just, just, you know, just like well-oiled machinery that perfectly fits together. Um, on this most recent viewing, I really focus on the characters and the relationships more just because obviously I know what's going to happen in the plot and I was less focused on the, what happens and more on the, how it happens. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, but yeah, I, you know, my, I was talking to my dad today and, uh, I mentioned what we were going to be talking about tonight. And when I mentioned midnight run, uh, you know, he was like, yeah, you know, it's funny, people talk about De Niro a lot, but I thought Groden was so much better. And I was just like, really? Because I do love Groden's character. But you talking about this kind of being a, a um, what do you call it, like kind of a step aside uh, for De Niro in kind of a different area. There are moments, not all of them, because I do think Groden is actually more consistent, probably. Uh, but De Niro is kind of awesome because he there are moments where he'll kind of dig back at Groden's character and uh, he'll do that face that anyone who uh, like tries to make or like do a, uh, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. An impression. Anybody who does the impression of De Niro, they make that face. He does that sometimes and it just like cracked me up, but he also still has like, I watched this movie and I'm like, I'm not surprised two years later, he's going to be in Goodfellas. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like even though he's not in the mob here, he just has this way of talking and this presence about him. And it was really fun to kind of just see him in a fun movie. Uh, so that's definitely part of it. Something else that stood out to me, and I don't know if this stood out to you or if you even care, but the music. The music, I don't know if this is just a thing that Martin Brest, like likes to bring in. I'm just going to be honest. I hate the music in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's uh it's one of those things where every time it comes on it feels so cheesy to me and it's just but it feels very much of its time because i can name other movies that are it, like that but it's not it, my it, taste it, go ahead yeah uh, danny elfman uh did the score uh uh and a very atypical score for him um uh it, it's very percussive it's almost not a lot of, there's almost no melody in it. It's a lot of like, bump, 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 you know, dun, dun, dun. It was, it's just like the beat and, and, the, and the percussion. Um, the, so, you know, it, it, you've got that the rhythm, you've got like, you know, the thumpings. And so it's just supposed to kind of keep you moving. Um, I have to say, you know, having sat, you know, having lived through 80s movies as, as a kid, uh, you know, I, I was just, just very much used to that stuff and it just, it brought me right back to it. It doesn't, it doesn't stand out to me. It, it, it works for the movie in the context that it is. Sure. Sure. And, and, and I, I definitely get the more historical thing as a musician scores often stick out to me. You know what I mean? Which is the only reason I really bring it up because there was just something about it. 
that just made it's just like dude i get that movies at the time had this type of music but there's just something about it where it's like i can't take even these serious moments seriously just stop with the music uh, i forgot elfman did it though i actually didn't put that in my notes but that that is uh that is an important point uh to bring I, up. I don't think i actually knew it i was uh when i was watching it uh last night actually uh and that came up i was like uh really danny elfman did the uh did the music for that i hadn't i hadn't realized it myself yeah up until just I'm sure I didn't remember because to me it it, it doesn't remind me of Elfman. No, it's, no, no, it doesn't. And that was obviously must have been one of his early. I don't think he he started doing it until like you know uh, Pee Wee's Big Show or whatever that movie was. Um, so yeah, then interesting. Yeah, Pee Wee's Big Adventure, that's the one. Um, but yeah, I, I gotta say overall, I was uh, I was a fan of Midnight Run. Uh, it, it was a fun time. Uh, there's not really a ton to really dig super deep into. This is definitely a popcorn flick. Have a good time with this. You know, uh, yes, there are flaws, I would argue, but those flaws do not ruin the experience of being able to watch these guys have a terrible time on the road, but it's very fun for us to watch them. And I bring up the buddy cop thing because full transparency, I read several things on Letterboxd, people writing about it, and they kept bringing up the buddy cop thing. And the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, of course, uh, Walsh was a cop who is no longer, but there are these kind of buddy cop tropes in the movie, even though neither one of them are cops. And I was like, that's so interesting. That's an interesting way to kind of look at it, as well as just like a road movie. I mean, this is the kind of traditional road tropes as well. And it did like that kind of summed it up for me. It's like, yeah, this is kind of like a buddy cop road movie. That's interesting for me. Um, but yeah, overall, I thought this was good. I'm not surprised it did so well. This definitely seems like something that would have been a hit, at least for its year, because I don't feel like it's really held on to its kind of hit persona, right? Like, this is a film that I feel like it's probably, unless you saw it when it came out, later generations have not went back to this like they may many yeah. other De Niro movies. I think that's true. I think it had a very strong reputation for probably about 20 years after it came out. Basically, you know, people like uh, uh, Baby Boom Generation or Gen X like me. Um, I think, but I think it's, you know, like the leading edge of millennials probably, you know, may remember they saw it on video. So I, th I think it's a movie that's, it's, it's, it's ripe to be rediscovered because it had a great re reputation and kind of has faded a little bit with time now over the last 10 or 15 years. But uh, I do think it's, it's ripe for rediscovery by a new generation. Yeah, I, I certainly encourage our uh, listeners to definitely check it out. Um, you know, for me, I'm a big film noir buff, and that works into a lot of neo-noirs too. But uh, film noir, even if it's not great, or even if we've seen that story done a million times, I usually still like them. You know, because <laughs> I just love everything about that 40s and 50s kind of noir style. This is one of those things where if you're into just fun, like either buddy cop or like road movies or just like those fun kind of 80s comedy, like action comedies or however you want to put it. Uh, I can't imagine anyone not liking this, like having like an actual dislike. If one is like neutral on it, that's fine. But disliking this movie seems hard to me. Uh, you should definitely go check this out if you haven't seen it. Um, any final thoughts on the movies, Chris, or the movie before we get to the deer hunter? No, I'm ready to go. All right. Uh, we will be right back in just a moment, friends, to talk about the listener's choice for this episode, The Deer Hunter. Come on, Joe. Come on, Joe. Come on. 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 Come on.
Chamber knife gun. everybody we're back to talk about the deer hunter from 1979 this was the listener's choice for this week directed by michael cimino it was written by michael cimino Derek washburn and louis garf garfinkel i almost said garfunkel uh <laughs> the uh cast was robert de niro christopher walken john Cazali, john savage meryl streep and george zunza it was released February 23rd, 1979 with a budget of 15 million box office was 49 million so again, another success. It won five Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Christopher Walken, I believe, and Best Director. The film is uh, an in-depth examination of the ways in which the U.S.-Vietnam War impacts and disrupts the lives of people in a small industrial town in Pennsylvania. The film depicts the events pre-Vietnam, then during, then post, and how it changed the lives of all of these main characters, and ultimately for the worse. Um, one thing that I've learned, Chris, is whenever I bring this movie up for people that have seen it, because I actually showed this in a film class that I co-taught with, uh, with another professor, and, um, I, outside we would have these, uh, screenings that I just volunteered to do, you know, because we, we were studying an era of film, I think Sam Watermeyer was in my class for this, and we were doing, I think it was a controversy in American cinema class. We were focusing on films from 1967, so postcode movies, you know, 66, 67, uh, all the way to 89. And it was funny watching students uh, watch something like The Graduate and being like, why is this controversial? I don't get it. And we would like, you know, kind of talk about the history and why this was a big deal at the time and production code this and blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, we, we kind of worked through that whole thing. But I would show movies outside of that era to help them kind of get a broader understanding of of uh, of kind of controversy in uh, world cinema. I mean, some of them were international. I showed, you know, Funny Games, for example, was one that we talked about, or uh, Man Bites Dog, which was uh, less controversial because it wasn't as big as any of the others. You know, they didn't kind of get big enough to have a controversy, but we were kind of be. I was basically showing some pretty easy ones that they could pick out controversy that would help us build a broader and better understanding of the era we were working in. All that to say, The Deer Hunter was one I, I think I showed outside of class, though it did fit in uh, that era. This film has been one of my favorites for a long time. I'm a big fan, and one thing that that I learned uh, watching it with these students is they. it is a three-hour movie, so it, it is a, a lengthy movie, all right? But I think it's so perfect. And 
the thing that students picked up is they felt, I remember for the first hour, they're like, dude, what's happening? Like, what is going on? Because it's literally the cast that I mentioned, those six people or so, just hanging out for like an hour, almost exactly. And then they get drafted and they go to Vietnam. And that's the second hour. And then the third hour is pretty much them just hanging out again, minus Christopher Walken. We'll get there. But it's like the five of them, minus Christopher Walken, just hanging out. Uh, but it it's all different now. You know, it's uh, they're doing all the same things that they did in the first hour. But now you realize, like, it's very sad. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like that first hour was a, a, a very kind of jovial, we're just like people, you know, messing around and we're friends and we're getting drunk and we're being goofy. They're doing all those things, but in the last hour, it is much more intense. And I always found that perfect. And it's kind of like people watching Full Metal Jacket. Whenever they watch it, they're like, I just like the first third, which is like the boot camp sequence. And to me, it's like, I can't watch that movie without the rest, because though I think that is an entertaining thing, it doesn't make sense without all of it for me. And that's how I feel about this movie. Some people, even after we watched it, and after I kind of debriefed and we kind of talked and had a discussion about it, uh, they still had a, a hard time with that first hour. And I think that first hour is absolutely pivotal to this movie. I want to start by asking you, Chris, do you have a problem with this running time? Do you have a problem with any of these three segments? And, um, you know, do you even like this movie? Does this connect with you at all? Give me your broad thoughts. It's not, you know, what I would call, even though it won a slew of Oscars, um, to me, it's not one of the, it's not one of the great films of the seventies. Um, it is very much a film of the seventies, specifically this this type of film that, that that kind of came up outside of the 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 ashes of the, the traditional studio systems and the the, the Hayes Code. Um, you know, they're what I call actors' movies. Um, that they're they you know they tend to be very languidly paced. They're very much not about plot. They're about scenes and moments and moods and feelings. Um, and you would have these actors that would just have these very organic, you know, th that was the, 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 the hallmark is they wanted to get away from the studio and, you know, great lines of dialogue and, you know, uh, tightly written things and, you know, his girl Friday, that kind of stuff. They wanted very organic kind of scenes where just people hanging out and talking um, seemingly not really doing anything interesting, but it just sort of, you know, gets you into the characters. Um, it's almost like osmosis. You just feel the movie sort of like seeping into your skin uh, and, and starts to affect you. Um, so, you know, I am both a uh, fan of this type of film, uh, but, but also I can see where it can tend to get indulgent um, and overlong, um, you know, and, and I think there are parts of this movie uh, that definitely do that. It, it, it's the sort of thing where you have to have a, a, you know, a filmmaker who has a lot of cachet, who can really do this, do something like this. And they're like, they're looking for another Godfather type of film. Um, and I do think that that first, it's actually to me closer to, oh, I think it's almost more an hour and a half uh before they really get to you know into vietnam and they're in vietnam like the actual vietnam sequence is not all that long 
it's pretty much goes straight into them and their captivity. And of course the Russian roulette and then their escape. Um, and then we're kind of in the post. So it's almost e even more than that. And it's one of those things where it's like, at the time I can see why they did it that way. Um, Rewatching it again. It's probably the first time I saw the movie in at least 20 years. You know, I do have this feeling of, you could accomplish everything you're doing in that hour or 15, whatever it is, you could probably accomplish everything you want to do in about half that running time in terms of really feeling like you know the characters, getting into them, what, what makes them tick, um, you know, sort of the, 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 the triad of Stephen and Nick and Michael and what, what's going on with each of them. With really, really, it's Michael's movie, the Robert De Niro character movie. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, just because they're off screen for a lot of time. It's the story of Michael and his sort of obsessive personality and this whole concept of one shot and, you know, doing things the best way possible because it's logical and he's all about logic and doing things the right way in order. And then that, that guy who's all about order is just thrown into absolute chaos and nihilism and death and random death for no reason and how he kind of deals with it or doesn't deal with it. Um, so even though, you know, and I love this stuff, you know, and they're, 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 you know, drunkenly driving around a 59 Cadillac. And I love that scene because I've got a 59 <laughs> Cadillac and, uh, you know, all that stuff is, I, I watch it now and I just sort of bask in it and I enjoy it. But at the same time, I'm like, I can see how if you were to grab uh, a 20 year old kid and say and, and watch that they'd be like man what is going on you know this is going on so long i can absolutely see how they would have that reaction absolutely i remember um a professor uh, dr west gearing who i became good friends with he was my advisor a lot of work and he was always so concerned because he's like man when we do in genres class when we do neo-noir i always want to show chinatown because it's just kind of this like ultimate example of neo-noir but my students hate it. And I'm always like, why? Like, I, I, I've never been that person. And again, maybe it comes from Amelie getting me into it. And then I went straight into, like, French New Wave, which is very abstract and very political and very kind of amorphous with its narratives. And if it even has a, a fluid narrative. Um, but, you know, people like, uh, I'll, I'll at least touch on, like, the 70s movie. Something like uh, Days of Heaven from Malik or, um, you know, in any of those, uh, why can't I think of one off the top of my head right now? Cause I, I think you and I on, on, on social media or something might have talked about my affinity for people like Malik and those kind of long winded, uh, <laughs> you know, um, uh, there's something about that type of storytelling, even, uh, even something like a apocalypse now or, or that type of kind of long winded storytelling. I understand there are differences between all the films I mentioned, but there's something about that kind of experiential factor that I think some people are not as into, and I get that, and I do think you could cut time off of this. I don't know if I'd go with a half. We, we could, we could yeah. argue about that another time, I'm sure. But the thing is, like, there's something about being able to spend this time with people that I think got lost at some point, probably just with blockbusters and things, uh, which have their own positives. But uh, where... I like when films don't just tell us, hey, these guys are friends. Or like, hey, this is what's going on. Here's one scene to show you that, and I'm going to move on. Sometimes I like to just 
live with these people and see these things happen and believe it because instead of you telling me what to feel in this moment, I want to experience it with these people. Just like those, again, everything's like a bookend with this movie for the most part, and they all surround that little half an hour or 40 minutes or whatever it is in Vietnam. And when Michael shoots the deer at the beginning, you know, and then at the end, he can't do it. You know, like those carry so much weight because when I get to the end, I'm like, ugh, like I can't let like, it just grips my heart. You know what I mean? And and that's just my taste. You know, Joe, yeah. Joe and I always <laughs> always argue about these things. You know what I mean? Where it's like I just I, I am all for it, man. And, and Ebert said this great line. I'm going to butcher it. You probably know uh, the quote I'm about to say. But, uh, you know, he would always say a a long movie that's well done, never feels too long. And a short movie that's not well done always feels too long. You know, or how, however the line goes. Do you? I want to say it's something like um, a great movie can never be too long. A terrible movie can never be too short or some, something like that. He's the genius. Yeah. So that's exactly, yeah, it's, you worded it a billion times. I don't have it in front of me. But I always, whenever I first read that, I was just like, man, that's interesting. Like, there are some movies, they could be four hours long. Like, I'll watch something like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, which is like four hours long, and I just never get bored watching that movie. You know what I mean? I haven't watched it in a long time. I need to rewatch it. Maybe my feelings would change. But when I, when I was really into, like, spaghetti westerns and things of that nature, uh, that stuff just never, ever felt boring to me. I never felt the length because I was just so invested, and I loved that. And then you get to a movie that could be like 90 minutes, and I'm like, dude, when is this going to be over? You know what I mean? And The Deer Hunter falls into that good, the bad, the ugly. Again, two very different movies, but I'm saying like that category I'm referring to, where it's like, man, I just never feel its length. That first hour, when I, especially the first time I watched it, I felt the length at that first hour until we got to the end, and it made me appreciate that first hour so much. Now when I watch it, I don't feel it as much because I know there's going to be a payoff to this. And all of these things, in my opinion, matter, right? Not like you said, we, we could we could trim some of that fat. Like that's, def, that's definitely a filmmaker kind of uh, choice there, right? Uh, but yeah, I, I never, I think it's just one of those things because those three distinct sections feel so important to me. But what kind of bothers me though I get it, uh, is much like something like a Full Metal Jacket, which is also in, <coughs> excuse me, which is also in three distinct kind of sections, you know. Um, a lot of people only think of that boot camp section. Like, that's where you see all the stills. That's where you see all the things. And it's kind of the same uh, with this, that Russian roulette scene. Dude, that scene is so good, I think. There is, like... Because you you brought up such a like an important thing. You have this character that's kind of this perfectionist, this detail oriented. Everything done the best way. I'm gonna do it so that it's done. You know that the outcome is this. You know he has everything kind of planned out, and he's thrust into this place that has no rules, that has no seemingly no right and wrong. You just survive, right? And to watch him break down the character that we've spent the last, as you said, maybe hour, fifteen, hour and a half, whatever have to break all of that down in a matter of moments because he's like thrust in the situation with no rules, right? I think it's great, but it does suck though because any if you type in the deer hunter, you're either going to get a shot of him 
aiming at the deer or whatever, you know, or it's going to be this Russian roulette scene. And it's one of yeah. those kind of like bittersweet things for me. Cause it's like, man, I want this movie to be seen as a whole, but that scene definitely steals the show. It's um, not just the one. Then, then the scenes later, we you know where he goes back and sees Christopher Walken playing again. And then he, again, there's really kind of almost like three, di- three different Russian roulette sequences. And how about that, that was Christopher Walken's absolute first film role, first movie he's ever in. He wins an Oscar for it. Um, but it's, getting back to the issue of, of you know the length and all that, you used a, a great word uh, about experiential. Um, and these one thing that's really a hallmark of these movies is they are pre-video era. Yeah, there was no way to watch a movie, you know, on on your home unless you waited for it to come on television. It was interrupted by commercials and all the nudity and swearing and violence was cut out. Um, the, these are really films that you really need to experience in a theater or as close to a theater experience as you can get. I mean, if you can find a way to have three hours undisturbed in your house where it's dark on a big screen. Um, the, the word I always use that, that is the difference between watch something, something on home video or on your mobile device versus going to theater is you need to be, there are some movies by, in which you need to be enveloped. You need to have where your total sensory experience, everything that's going on with you is this movie. Um, and if there's anything that really distracts from it, um, I think it really detracts from the experience. So I think, it, weirdly enough, if you were to watch Deer, Deer Hunter in a movie theater, I don't think you feel its length at all versus, you know, when I watch it where I'm having to, like, turn it off and go go make my kids dinner uh, and then come back and watch it some more. You, you do feel the length very, more, very much more. The other thing I do want to say about the Deer Hunter is... The film, I, and I remember this, um, you know, it was, even though it came out and won a ton of Oscars and it did its box office and it is, as they say, is always well regarded. The movie was distinctly felt like a disappointment when it came out by a lot of audiences and, and in the years after. Um, and not just it, it, it was also uh, Coming Home and it was also Apocalypse Now. And I know to a lot of people that seems strange. They think of Apocalypse Now and some of these movies as masterpieces. They were very much seen as disappointments um, contemporaneously when they came out. And that was because people wanted to have the Vietnam War experience on film. And, and when they saw this movie is coming out, it's called The Deer Hunter, it's called Coming Home, or it's called, Apoc- called Apocalypse Now. We're going to get our, our movie about the Vietnam War, which in 1978 was only three years before it had ended um and people wanted that there was this i think national need for a cinematic catharsis i mean because you know i mean during world war ii and even the korean war they were making movies about the war while the movie was going on um and other than stuff like the green berets and jingoistic junk like that um we weren't really getting that so there was this real sense of we want to have the big guns in Hollywood take on the Vietnam War and and really get at the heart of what the Vietnam War was from the American perspective. And that is not what the deer hunter is about. I don't think it's not what coming home about and and is not what apocalypse now certainly is not. Those are, they're more art films that are, you know, particularly deer hunter is really about those characters, these people from these, you know, Slavic working steel mill towns in Pennsylvania, um, 
going off to war. It's about these very specific characters and what happened to them. Um, and you could literally, it was just a few tweaks of the screenplay, make this set in Korea or some other era. Um, so I don't, even though Vietnam is strangely, you know, the film is of Vietnam War, but it's not about the Vietnam War. I think it's about, it's a film about these characters. It's about that community. And that's why uh, Tomino spends so much time establishing the community. So he wants to be the story of this community, these men from this community, what happens to them when they go off to war, when they have this terrible experience. Um, and it's not supposed to be an indictment of the Vietnam War or here's what it really was from the perspective of the soldiers in the Vietnam War. Um, that movie did finally come, but it came eight years later with Platoon. Um, and that was and that was a movie that I think that Oliver Stone made that was it was intentionally to say this is the the Vietnam War movie from the perspective of the people who fought there, um, and it's sort of our confessing of our sins and you know really trying to have that catharsis. Whereas I think Deer Hunter is not not trying to be that movie. It's trying to be something else entirely. Uh, which is very noble, but I think that's why, uh, for a lot of people, it had that taint of disappointment to it. Yeah, it's interesting because I see this film as uh, kind of inherently tied to Vietnam, but I want to dis- make a distinction between the two things we just said, though, because I think we're going to end up on the same page, is though I see it as inherently tied uh, and being kind of about it, what you said audience want audiences wanted is not what this is. Like, so I totally yeah. agree with like, it's not dealing with Vietnam in the same way that they wanted. Yeah. It's not about the politics. It's not about, you know, the America's failure and going in there. It's not about the lies. It's not, it's not really about any of that. It's it, that is in there. Um, you know, uh, you know, to me, the basic theme of the film is, you know, American boys, pure of heart, um, being thrown into this maelstrom of chaos and hate and death um, and how it affects them in, in, in very disparate ways. Um, so, you know, there is a parable there about, you know, America's loss of innocence that, you know, we're the good guys on the national stage and here we go into this war. But, you know, again, I mean, I mean, there isn't even, even like, like any combat in the film there's it's not about the uh, why america is in the war it's it's about what happens to them there yes. when they're captured and tortured and all this kind of stuff so yeah i mean i i don't think you can disassociate the vietnam war from the film but like i say i mean you you could easily remake the film with almost the same dialogue the same characters the same everything and just change it to uh afghanistan <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it would or, you know move it forward, move it back in time. It would not be difficult. Yeah, and and from a, from a pure plot standpoint, for sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you you kind of hinted at, or you or not hinted, but you you made a good point. This is not platoon, and that's what the people were kind of aiming for. Is this movie that takes place in the war about this war, um, and that's part of the thing that I love about it. these are like those movies that I just really gravitated toward uh, early in my kind of cinematic 
just I was a cinematic vacuum, just like taking everything that I could, just sucking it all up. And sponge might be a better phrase, just soaking up all of the movies. And these are some that, like I said, uh, really got me. And, you know, uh, I think looking at performances again also, I mean, you know, uh, of course, you know, Christopher Walken had those small roles in like Annie Hall and stuff like that. But this is his first big role. You know what I mean? Like yeah, this yeah. is this is the first movie period, but yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 I know what you were saying. You know, it's it's like this is his first kind of lead. I mean, he's a supporting actor, but he's one of the ma- he's one of the boys, right? He's one of the main guys. And so uh man, it's great because if if the listeners haven't watched much Christopher Walken before he became like Christopher Walken concentrate where he's like parodying himself basically, you know, like he has that cadence in that way he talks, that's not really here. You know, I mean, you can tell, but it's not as saturated. Do you get what I mean? If you watch a movie like Seven Psychopaths and you hear Christopher Walken, like, act and talk in that movie, like, where he sounds like everyone's impersonation of him, you know, and then you watch this, like, you definitely have this kind of young actor. He's very much just performing. You definitely still get those hints, but it's not as concentrated in the same way Jack Nicholson, De Niro, Pacino, all of those guys almost leaned into that kind of impersonation quality. Um, you know, uh, you get that older version of of uh, of Walken. I think he's great here. Um, I, I, I his relationship with Michael, played by De Niro, I think is like so good. But I I'll tell you, of course, you know Meryl Streep, who is not in large portions of this movie. You know what I mean? But she's great. Uh, George Zunza, I actually, I absolutely love, but he doesn't go to war. Uh, but the John Cazale, uh, John sat or no, no, no. Cazale didn't go. It was John Savage, Christopher Walken and De Niro. That trio, man. Say again. I can't hear you now. Nick, Steven and Michael. Um, and, and they were all given sort of like the most generic American names possible, I think, intentionally. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But man, there, that that scene, I, I'm going back to this Russian roulette scene, bruh, De Niro, okay? <laughs> Whenever he's putting that gun to his head, the shaking, you know, the intensity of that scene, I had never seen anything like this. And I, I would actually challenge uh, anyone who hasn't really dove in, who like movies, who might be listening to this and haven't explored the depth of cinema or done what you said by reeling backwards, right? And kind of going back and uh, for your own just film education, you know? And I often don't encourage people just to like jump back to some 50s art film. It's like, hey, let's talk about this first because <laughs> you might, this might not work for you yet, but give it some time and it will. But The Deer Hunter, I feel that way a bit because I, I don't know of many scenes, for, and I'll speak personally at least, that are as intense as that roulette scene. Like that is so visceral. And Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's what you say. When people talk about the movie, they talk about that because it's the most iconic moment in the film. It's, it's what you will never forget taking away, you know, just the way those three guys uh, sort of – you know, confront this idea of potentially killing yourself, you know, being forced to kill yourself, you know, and Steven kind of reacts in that, you know, sort of, he tries to avoid it. He points the gun (laughs) upward, sort of just grazes his head, you know, Nick uh, at first, you know, is completely scared out of his mind at doing it, but then he finds himself having just a 
fascination and a fixation on it that he can't ever let go. And Michael's reaction is to be defiant. And, you know, he's like arguing, you know, the, 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 the officer is slapping him and he's, you know, jumping up and trying to grab the officer. He's absolute, you know, defiance. Just the way those three different guys react to that situation. I do want to mention also uh, John Cazale. This was his final film. He was dying of cancer and everyone knew it. Um, uh, and uh, they actually set it up so that all of his scenes, both before and after they go off to war, were shot at the beginning of production. And then he died you know, shortly thereafter. Uh, and even though he doesn't have a huge role in it, you know, I think he's still great and pivotal. Um, and, and what a legacy that guy has. Only starred in five movies. All five of them were nominated for Best Picture. And I think uh, two, two of them won. So uh, quite a legacy for him. Just a quick break, just in memory of Kazali here. His first big role, Fredo and the Godfather, dude. Who gets that role? Give, I mean, goodness gracious. So he's in The Godfather. He's in another one of my faves, The Conversation. He's then in Godfather Part 2. Dog Day Afternoon. Listeners, if you haven't seen Dog Day Afternoon, I personally am just going to really throw this out there. I love that movie. And then The Deer Hunter. I mean, honestly, the name the first five films of anybody. And I will I will put I will put that right up against his. I don't I can't think of anybody off the top of my head who had a better first five films. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's always amazing when you have an actor or a director or whatever that just has this amazing run. Um, and you know, I mean, for most people they're lucky if they get, you know, a run that lasts five films or yeah. even five yeah. years, you know, and then maybe they make three mil- for films in those five years. Um, so, yeah, that's the guy that guy just, you know, we, we miss him so much because, you know, he was so young when he when he passed away and what the future uh, could have brought with that. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I think about that sometimes. Yeah. I mean, he. There's a documentary on him. I, I forget what it's called off the top of my head. I would have to look it up right now. I'm not going to take the time. But if you look up John Ghazali, um, he has a documentary. It's a, it's a shorter doc. It's not super long, but it kind of talks about each of the five films he was in and what happened with his life. Definitely go check that out. It's it's really great. Uh, just as like an educational thing, even. It's not that it's like this groundbreaking doc. But, I mean, it's just interesting about a guy who did these incredible films and was just gone. You know, like, uh, I mean, what what a life and career this guy could have had. Were he able to have continued? And uh, yeah, so props to John Cazale. I mean, it just every time I see him in every film, he just kind of blows my mind, you know. Uh, and he, he's honestly one of the things, I mean, I, I like Gene Hackman, but he's one of the things that makes me love the conversation. I love his character. Um, so that, that's, that's a lot of that. But another thing with John Savage's, uh, as Steven, his, his performance. I remember when I first saw it, I always thought he was just like kind of over the top a little bit. But as I got more into film and as I kind of got a little older and I started really thinking about what these guys would be going through during this Russian roulette sequence, it didn't really shock me that he seems so over the top. He's having a nervous breakdown in the middle of this kind of like no rules war scenario. And it, like his he he gets these moments where he has to catch his breath and he's like gasping for air and you know he's like trying not to drown in one sequence because they have him in this cage and there are these rats and 
you know, yeah. I mean, it's just brutal. It's well, yeah. What basically happens is all of them have their breakdown. It's just the speed at which it happens. Yes. For Steven, it's immediate, and for Nick, it takes a while. Like I remember the the, the scene where he's in the he's escaped there and he's sitting there in the hospital. And he's like sitting on the balcony and the doctor is trying to interview him. And he's asking basic questions like, "What's your name? What's your parents' name? What's your parents' birthday?" And you know, and you know, that's when he really breaks down. Um, yeah. And then I think yeah. Michael, it really doesn't come until, you know, the very end with Nick's death where, you know, he's trying to hold on. So it's sort of like all of these men are broken, but you don't see the fracture lines at, at you see them at different speeds. Um, and there's different speeds at which it becomes apparent to anyone that they become broken. 100 percent. You you basically just went exactly where I wanted to go, because like that's that's kind of the power of the film for me again. I do agree. We could we could probably trim the fat on some of that earlier stuff. We could we could really uh, like cut cut that down and rework a few things so you get all those plot points in and all those character moments and all that development. Totally agree there. But man, like just because of what you said, that everything from the Russian roulette moment to the end of the film, I think is like so critical. And it's because of that you're develop you're further developing characters that we already know. And you are uh, essentially creating these breakdowns as they go. And Walken's breakdown, I remember the first time I saw it even, it like crushed me. Like watching it and seeing, because he's still that character. You know, he, he's, what, what's his name, Nick? Yeah. Yeah, so he's still Nick, right? But man, when he breaks down, you realize that beneath that facade, right? Going back to that idea, he's just, he's mush. Like he's just... There's nothing there. And, of course, we see that kind of progress uh, as time goes on. I mean, once you go through a situation like that, how do you feel anything again without recreating that instance, right? Um, that's that's a really powerful thing. John Savage, of course, is just... He's going to be messed up for life. <laughs> you know, like, that dude is a mess for the rest of the film. And Michael being that guy who kind of holds everything together, the, the rock, um, you know, like you said, uh, he's you see that internal struggle for the whole last part of the film, but he holds it together until the end when he's holding Nick. I mean, dude, I just talking about it almost gives me goosebumps because I love this movie so much. <laughs> uh, like these, these, and yeah. this is, like you said, this is an actor's film, right? Like this is one of those... Uh, all of these guys are actors, actors at this point, right? Like they're doing that work that makes every actor jealous and makes every actor want to learn from them because everyone is so good in it. Uh, and and it's it's almost like someone saying like, oh, he's a comedian's comedian, you know, like a comics comic. You know, that's what this film is in that, you know, um, it's like a critic's film or it's like an actor's film. Like this is the thing they're playing to those people. Yeah, a lot of a lot, lot of films from that that era that's like that you know like five easy pieces or fat city um where you know like a like a, like a midnight run i mean like like i say i think it's a great piece of, of entertainment but i mean you can feel the director and the screenwriter you know, right there and like okay we're moving it along we're moving it along we're moving it along yeah and a lot a hallmark a lot of these these actors movies particularly from the 70s is is the movie is not in any kind of a hurry um, and it's, it's, it's these very organic scenes where it just feels like, um, almost improvisational where the actors are just hanging out, um, talking to each other, uh, almost like, you know, like the movie is these actors having lunch. Um, 
Uh, and I think particularly the, that generation of actors really loved that kind of stuff. So they really pushed it. They connected with filmmakers who did that kind of thing, uh, Cassavetes and things like that. So it, it was a real organic era of cinema um, that I think we miss in a lot of ways. I do. I mean, e even when I can acknowledge sometimes the excesses of it uh, and the tendency towards self-indulgent, I, I, I do miss sometimes the way movies seems modern movies often seem so much in a hurry. Yeah. Um, and so when I see, I do see movies um, that aren't in a hurry. It can be almost like, like a, a rebirth experience. We're like, wow, I, I, I don't need to have be moving to exactly the next plot point every seven minutes. Yeah, dude. I mean, you just spoke my language there. That's, that's one of those things where, that's a very good way to put it, actually. I like the idea of there's room for all these movies that come out now. But sometimes, you know, when you see these movies that are like, let's progress every seven minutes. We have to move along. We have to move along. Man, it makes these movies like this just feel so special. And we did a we did a Cassavetes marathon way early in the in the life of this podcast. My friend Jake, who lives in L.A. and he's a screenwriter. We broke down Cassavetes and we watched five of his films. And, uh, dude, and I'm a huge Cassavetes, so if you haven't, I bet you could have guessed, but, <laughs> but I'm a huge Cassavetes fan also, but it does that same thing. Take something like, um, a woman under the influence. Like it's very much this sort of a thing where you're kind of just watching these people. There's no direct narrative. You're kind of putting the narrative together in your head because you're pulling out these kind of sub subtexts. Right, and you're building that narrative, even though there is no deliberate narrative to be told. Husbands uh, that Cassavetes did is the same way, where that's just you're just watching these three dudes do stuff the whole movie. Like there's no direct narrative, uh, but you start to put together what the film's about as it goes on. I'm like a total mark for that, like a total sucker. Yeah, I think a lot of that came out of like actors' schools, which you know that was a fairly new thing in like the like 1950s and on. Is going to school for acting. Yeah. Um, and you know, you almost saw you, you saw a lot of experimentation, and you saw a lot of saw a lot of things where like basically like actors and directors were taking things that were exercises that they did. and say, well, no, let's build that up. Let's make that into a play. Let's make that into a movie. Um, and so they would then sort of just backward engineer and graft some kind of a narrative onto it just to kind of give it enough breadth that you could actually do like a, a you know, a three act play or a 90 minute feature film about it. But it very much became that thing where it was films, you know, so for so long, you know, they were always from the studio's perspective, it was the studio's directives, you know. Here's the way it goes. Here's how, how long your movie should be. Who's, here's who's going to be in your movie. Um, and then it kind of really moved into directors, you know, more in the 50s and 60s. And then you got into the 70s. And I think it was really actors for a while that were driving movies saying, here's what I want to do. Here's the kind of moments I want to flesh out and make live. Uh, and the, the directors and, and, and studios kind of reacted to that saying like, okay, what they try to accommodate the actors and say, like, can we make these movies that are less about plot and less about story and more just about the moments and the performance and the mood? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and speaking of this, looking at the historical element of why maybe at the time, even though this did well, 
in the box office, it might have felt like a disappointment, especially for kind of casual moviegoers or even, you know, people that weren't casual moviegoers, but maybe didn't kind of know how to take it or 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 maybe they even liked it, but just expected to maybe like it more based on maybe the, the trailer or, or things that they'd heard. Um, you mentioned that part of it was because people wanted to see a certain depiction of Vietnam, which I agree with totally. That was definitely something lacking because so many of these films, I would argue, uh, have like an anti-war mentality, right? And so uh, like a lot of them weren't really interested in just showing this kind of exploitation of a film as they might have seen it then, but they wanted to show more of like the effects that affect these real people and all of that. Of course, like you said, Oliver Stone would later go on to kind of do this to say like let's 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 look at our sins right like that kind of i like how you put that but i also think part of it too because uh <clears throat> around 1980 there is a book called easy writers raging bulls and they end in 1980 because heaven's gate by the same director chimino is uh like kind of the movie they consider the last of the new hollywood era right um, and it just becomes more of like a blockbuster era, thanks to films like Jaws and Star Wars and Close Encounters and all those kind of big, uh, huge hits. And it's funny because you have something like The Exorcist who made gangbusters box off. I mean, like the amount of money they spent to make that movie, but the box office that came in was crazy. But the controversy behind it scared studios, right? They didn't want like the church and different people to just like boycott them. But then you get a movie that's a little more digestible, had its own controversies, but still uh, easier to take, like Jaws. And then you get into those Star Wars and all these huge movies, and then you're getting into Raiders of the Lost Ark in the early 80s, and you know, you're hitting these blockbusters. I'll just ask you your opinion, because I, I think it matters, but I'm curious what you think. The effect of movies like this, and kind of the either moved to independent films doing this or just kind of the de the decrease in movies like this in the 80s that were this type of film. They still existed. They just weren't in as many, like, there weren't as many of them, right? How much of that do you think, beyond just the depiction of Vietnam and people wanting something different, how much of that do you think was kind of the growing movie audience and people's love for these films like these popcorn flicks like Star Wars uh, Jaws, of course, which was horrifying at the time. A lot of people don't really see it as a horror movie now. But, um, I mean, when you see a kid get eaten alive and there's blood everywhere, I think, you know, it works. But, you know, like you had these movies that were kind of accessible to wide audiences, popcorn flicks as well. But also they were also really great. Like I'm a huge, huge fan of Close Encounters and Jaws and all these movies. How much of like the blockbuster era do you think kind of might have affected movies like this and we kind of saw the decrease the decrease of uh films like this yeah i i, I, I tend to uh to see things you know I, I look at the evolution of films as you know more like uh tides going in and out you know and, and maybe that's not the best description because tides tend to be the same it's more like you know uh, a river carving its own path as it lives and things are going to be different and things are going to be constantly new. Things that were very popular will suddenly become unpopular and things that will suddenly come up are suddenly extremely popular. I mean, I love popcorn movies and those blockbuster movies and Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones movies. I mean, I, I literally grew up on those. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and the thing is, there still were small, quirky, weird movies coming out um, in the 80s, 90s, always. Absolutely. They're out there. 
particularly even now, you know, now it's moved to like video on demand and things like this. Movies that are in no way part of the pop culture consciousness, but they are out there to be found and there are ways to see them. There's channels to see them on streaming. Um, you're probably not going to see them in a movie theater, but you can find them on video on demand or very deep, deep, deep in the Amazon Prime or Netflix queues. Um, they're out there. I mean, just this week, I reviewed a documentary called Queen of the Beach, which is a guy who shot it over the course of a decade of this Indian girl he met as a, who's a street vendor and watching her grow up. I mean, that is really small, esoteric kind of stuff, but it's still out there and it's still happening. And it was still happening um, in the 1980s, uh, the, the, the 70s, the 80s, you know, Eraserhead. I mean, there was always weird offbeat movies that was there for maybe just a tiny little strata of people to enjoy. Um, a lot of times those weird little quirky offbeat movies and filmmakers became the mainstream milk yeah. filmmaker and changed things. I mean, you know, Tim Burton was this, you know, crazy little, little art dude making his weird dark movies. Um, and then, you know, he made Beetlejuice and it became a great big thing. Yeah. And suddenly he was making Batman movies and he made great, fantastic original movies for a long, long time. And then about 2001, he just completely sold his soul yeah. uh, and started making a bunch of remakes <laughs> of crap. But, you know, even that, I mean, you know, I don't tend to be very critical of eras of films and say like the eighties was bad or this was great or, you know, they should get all back to those great languid actors, movies of the seventies. Um, they're still being made out there. I mean, like, you know, Green Knight that just came out is really in a lot of ways like the sort of movie that these you know the Cassavetes or somebody would have made like you said a Cassavetes like make me a, a Knights of the Round Table movie that's the sort of thing he probably would have made so <laughs> I mean whatever kind of movie you like is probably out there and you just have to go find it um and by the same token you know, look for stuff that you don't like and you're going to find new things that you do like that you didn't know about. Yeah. Yeah. And to clarify, not that you are implying this or anything, but yeah, I, one of my big things when I've talked to my friends about movies and tried to like help them expand their own kind of horizons, so to speak, is uh, never say that you hate a whole something. So no. I hate Westerns. I challenge that. Let me show you you know, I don't know, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and tell me you hate Westerns. You know, like whatever it is, you know, there is a whole variety of subgenres within a larger genre. If you are into action movies and comedies, I guarantee I can show you a drama you'll be into or I guarantee I can show you comedies you won't like, right? Like there is always something. Uh, and, you know, one thing that we used to show, or not we, uh, one thing that Gehring, Wes Gehring, I mentioned earlier, used to show in his class when we would talk about genre, especially when we would look at world history of film, um, you know, uh, prior to World War II, is he would he was a huge fanatic of Chaplin. He wrote multiple books on Charlie Chaplin, but we would show he would show a movie like City Lights or The Gold Rush or Modern Times, one of those three usually. Sometimes others, like he showed us the circus one time, but he would he would show you these movies, and I'm telling you, dude, all these kids that were completely ready to hate this movie were cracking up 
because there's something universal about a lot of that humor that you can really get into. Same thing with uh, Sherlock Jr. I think we showed one time. And it's like, that is 28 minutes of perfection. Like anybody yeah. listening, you can get that on YouTube. I think it's even up there. Go watch Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. I bought it on Blu-ray, a 28 minute movie. And I spent a full Blu-ray cost. And I don't even give a shit because it's awesome. So, <laughs> uh, but it's like, I can't even figure out how he did some of the stuff that he did. Usually I can watch and see how the effects go. And I like to figure those things out and actually enhances my experience but it even enhances it more when I can't even when I try and I don't even know how he did some of these things because he's really doing it they didn't have CG effects you know like he's doing these things so like I always love getting people to go back and watch movies and every era has its its stars you know what I mean like it's it's bangers uh, whether it's all the way from the early silent films I mean even George Melies you know in the early 1900s did some really awesome shit that you can watch now and love, right? And then uh, going all the way to today, which I am a huge, I'll, I'll admit, and anybody who listens knows this, I can be a real big critic of a lot of new big budget movies because they just like, I will just tear them apart often. I go into them trying to give everything the best shot it can, but a lot of times, like I watched Mortal Kombat, you can go listen to my thing on that, you know, like uh, movies like that I can usually enjoy to some extent. But I do, like you said, I miss the like movies like this sometimes. Or even going back further, you were talking about people in the 50s, like going to acting school. Stuff like Elia Kazan doing his plays, but also these incredible films like On the Waterfront, which is probably a personal favorite of mine. But like, man, those really get me. I actually introduced my dad. He's a huge Andy Griffith fan. And I introduced him to A Face in the Crowd. Have you seen A Face in the Crowd? Yeah, it's so good. I didn't even know I liked it that much. Actually, as we were watching it, I bought the Criterion version of it while we were watching it because I just wanted like I wanted this movie in my collection because I loved it so much. So there's like so much of every era that you can enjoy. And I love something that you said. I know we've kind of gotten away from the deer hunter, but just go watch it. It's so good. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, one thing that you said before is like, Oh, God, I already forgot what you said. Hold on one second. I'll edit this out if I have to. Um, <coughs> ah, I can't remember what you said, Chris. About what What was the topic? I'm trying to remember stuff from different eras, but you mentioned something early. It's way early. I think it might have even been in our last conversation. It's, about, it's, a, it's a, like a treasure trove. That you can, it's yes. like a treasure trove. Yeah. Thank, thank like you so much. Trip never ends it never ends and it's the thing even now like when i make lists on letterbox or even on my phone of movies i want to see or movies i want to show my wife if we want to watch horror movies in in october i will never run out of movies i have not seen you know what i mean like there even even if i feel like i've seen all the bangers in the u.s which i have not but i mean like all these big heavy hitters that people talk about whether it's scream or nightmare on elm street movies or friday the 13th or whatever you know, like I watched Friday the 13th Part 2. I probably had seen it before, but it felt like the first time. We watched that last night in celebration of Friday the 13th, of course. And I had a really great time with that movie. I thought it was like a fun slasher movie, right? It was like a good time. But if I run out of stuff like that, all I got to do is go to Italy, watch some Gallo films, or you know, like go to France in the mid-2000s. They had so many like gore horror movies. And like there are all these little subgenres from different eras that you can find and find these like really awesome, uh, awesome pictures. And basically all I'm getting at is please go explore movies 
Uh, please don't turn away from a genre just because you watched one movie from it that you didn't like. Uh, and The Deer Hunter is just one of those kind of actor's movies, as you put it, you know, uh, that, you know, I, I tend to kind of grieve the the kind of loss of those, even though I love the 80s. Like, I love so many movies from that era that don't fit into this. Uh, but I do sometimes grieve the, the lack of these movies nowadays. And like you said, they still exist. And I think a big part of it is I miss having those directors that were like household names that were making these pictures. You know what I mean? And we get them sometimes. We do. And I'm excited to see The Green Knight. I haven't had an opportunity to see it yet. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I really miss it. Any, any last mo any last things you want to say about The Deer Hunter before we kind of start to close up here, Chris? Getting back to that. <laughs> see, see, I, uh, so rewatching it, I probably hadn't seen it in at least 20 years. Um, and yeah, I was, I, I was, I was struck by different things just about the, the flow of it. Um, about these three men, it's like if the, the the three men are the main figures, and you have this this community that's all around them, yeah. And the community is kind of what forms them, um, and yeah. And how it is a movie that is not in a hurry. I, 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 I was watching it, you know, the opening credits and, and stuff. I think the establishing shots are of like them there in the 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 steel forge, and it's just shots of like you know millwork going on. I don't think you see one of the main actors' faces for the first five minutes of the movie. Um, and how you could never make that movie, or at least make it that way today. Yeah, yeah. Nothing would ever get a budget from a studio for that shit. <laughs> that would never, ever happen. Um, yeah, and and the thing is, it you know, of course, if we really wanted to get into the weeds, we could really dig into the to the Deer Hunter. But really, what this film consists of is excellent performances. Even if someone doesn't like the movie, I'd be surprised if someone bashed the performances. I mean, we have like a ton of A-list talent here, even if they never got to that A-list. You know, like someone like George Zunza. How good's that guy? And it's like, he was always kind of this like side character in all these movies. You know what I mean? Like occasionally he'd yeah. get his star role, but I think he's so great. And the same thing with uh, someone like a John Savage, who of course had his own level of fame, but he was never like a... Uh, uh, a De Niro or a walk-in who would like go out of this, you know, being like that huge, huge star. Uh, so the performances are like a huge part of this. And I think the structure of this film, which we touched on, uh, I think is like a really important thing. And beyond that, it's experience. And for us to sit and talk about it, you know, in many ways won't do it justice. I mean, this is just a movie I feel like you have to experience. And I actually really appreciate the points that you made about maybe this is a better theater experience, or maybe this is a better when you can actually set aside the time to be able to sit back and really let this film wash over you and absorb it via osmosis, as you put it, another great moment. Uh, you know, uh, I think that's true. And I, I think, you know, we could sit and talk about it over and over and over and talk in circles. And uh, But in reality, it's just something you have to experience. And, and really the big scene you can talk about is the Russian roulette sequence because there's so much like specific stuff you can kind of pick out, right? But everything else is experiential. I, For me, this is just uh, like a top. It's so hard to say a top anything, but we'll, I'll just keep it safe and say a top 50. All right, that's a big number. But when you've seen thousands, it's not that big. So I really appreciate you doing this with us. Um, I hope to have you on again. We're going to, uh, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to, at the very least, do some uh, little intro stuff where you tell us about some stuff you've seen, some movies people should check out. 
Um, I know you do that for Wish TV. So, uh, folks, go check out their stuff. Where can we watch that stuff online? Uh, uh, for the indie style stuff, just go to Wish TV, their indie style section, all of my segments. Uh, they are, uh, they, they break them out so you can just watch that little pieces or on the filmyap.substack.com. I always post, uh, anything I'm in like podcast or like that. Like I'll share this podcast on there as well. Yeah. And, and, and break this down real quick. Uh, just to make sure we know you keep saying filmyap.subs. What's the word you're saying? Yeah. So the film, we also still have our website, thefilmyap.com. Um, but we're transitioning over to filmyap.substack.com as our main platform. Um, and that's cool because it's a, it's a new thing where it's, it's a website, but it's also a newsletter. So you can go on there and sign up. You can sign up for free. Um, we also have some paid stuff. Yes, uh, we do believe in that model of paying for your uh, local journalism uh, uh, at the different tiers. So throw us... We're not ashamed to say, feel free to throw us a little bit of your filthy lucre. We will, we will happily take it. Um, <laughs> but, and yeah, so that's kind of our, our main, main way to experience the film. Yep. Now we are still posting on the film. but we're doing like just snippets that says like, here's the first three paragraphs and then a link, go read the rest on filmyap.substack.com. So feel free to wander over there. Uh, to, and sign up for a free subscription. And if you like, you can uh, go up to a, a, a paid subscription, uh, if you please. Um, and harkening back to the first part of our um, uh, conversation about you know the evolution of film criticism, if you're someone who listens to podcasts like this and is just a nut about movies and always wants to express yourself, you know, reach out to somebody and you know try your hand at writing or doing a podcast. Um, reach out to me. You can reach me at filmyap at gmail.com. Um, say, hey, I'd like to write about such and such subject. Um, some of the new writers we've just brought on within the last six months uh, came to us that way. Um, and we're always looking for new people who want to share their passion for film. Yeah. And that's how I came to you guys. Sam Watermeyer, actually, I saw that he had posted. I was like, who do I talk to about this? He hooked me up with Joe. And I got involved. And that's how I met you, of course. And uh, it was a great experience. And I'll probably. Uh, you know, hit you up at some. If you want to revive the blind spot column, feel free. Uh, we, you know, we've got writers who write for us every week. I've got writers who probably only write two or three things a year, and it's like we tell them what whatever speed is is good for you is good for us. Yeah, and that's what I was about to say. I would love, I would love to write again. I've done, I've done other things, but it'd be nice to start writing again and uh, and doing more of that. So hey, if you're into that, definitely hit up Chris in the film app and see, you know, if you can, if you can get involved in that and, uh, Hey, help all of us film journalists, because, uh, you know, the thing I love is just the encouragement of trying to help build better film journalists and help people learn kind of how to express themselves whenever they've experienced something that is meaningful to them. So I love that. I appreciate your work. Hey, let's do this again. Thank you so much. Hey, I enjoyed it so much. Can't wait to come back again. Hey, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for listening. If you noticed, there's like this weird thing happening with Chris's uh, mic. Like it would kind of like get a little quieter and then a little bit louder and then a little bit quieter. And then toward the end, it started doing this crackly thing. And I was like trying to figure it out. We just couldn't. So we just went with it because, you know, what else was I going to do? Uh, I'll tell you this. If, if you know anything about Zoom and what happened there, 
by all means hit me up. I gotta do some troubleshooting so that doesn't happen again because I was actually in a work meeting and I heard someone else's mic do the same thing. What's that even mean? Anyways, that was a fun conversation about Robert De Niro's, uh, you know, Midnight Run and The Deer Hunter. Uh, we, he likes, <clears throat> excuse me, he likes The uh, Midnight Run more than me, but uh, I, I do enjoy it. I encourage you to go check it out. I think The Deer Hunter is a goddamn masterpiece. I mean, I think it is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, he wasn't as big on it. Um, and, and, and uh, you know, I, I hate to say this without giving him a chance to uh, respond, but yeah, I, I, I tend to tie it directly to Vietnam, actually, and it's like one of those things I just want to write like this big paper on. Uh, but we had a great time. We didn't really disagree, perhaps, or per se, um, but it was just more of like, you know, what kind of draws us? And I think these two films are actually really good examples of the difference between Chris and I. I look forward to having him on again so we can kind of, you know, illuminate and embrace those differences next time. He was a great... Uh, guest and uh, I'm looking forward to him coming back anyways hey I'm gonna let you go now I'll talk to you soon I love you guys stay tuned for uh, I'm gonna be having Evan Dossie from the Midwest Film Journal on we're gonna be celebrating um, you know uh, Tim Burton's birthday I think we're gonna be talking about Edward Scissorhands and then the others are actually you know TBA right now I actually don't know what we're doing yet we're working that out right now as, as of the time of this recording so be surprised, we may do Edward Scissorhands. Uh, that day is also, around that day, is also an anniversary of the movie Snatch. Also, Edgar Wright's 2013 film, The World's End. You know, it's Gene Kelly's birthday on August 23rd, uh, which I believe is, I think, the day before the episode will drop. So it's like, dude, we can watch some musicals. Sean Connery's birthday is on the 25th. I mean, the point is, there's, there's a lot going on. So we'll surprise you with that one. But at least we'll be talking about Edward Scissorhands, I'm pretty sure. And we're going to have a good time. Ethan's a really nice guy. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. So until then, good night, good luck, and take it easy. Thank you.